This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by NGS Films and Graphics, the nationwide leading dealer installer of 3M Safety and Security Window Film, TriShield, Riot Glass, and Ballistic Glass. Swarm technology is already proven. So like you said, if, a, if an F-16 was taken off on an Air Force base and there was a swarm of drones in that airspace, yeah, that's another bad day. The easiest thing to do, as you know, if you don't understand what's going on around you, is to simply circle the wagons, you know, place the rifles out at the ports and get ready for the worst to come. All that and so much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Bill Edwards, CPP, PCI, PSP, CPD, CIMP, is the president of Caliber Engineering and a retired U.S. Army colonel with more than 34 years of experience as a security, safety, and intelligence professional. Colonel Bill Edwards, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Yeah, thank you very much for having me today. I'm really excited to talk to you about this. Our topic is lessons from the war in Ukraine, commercial drones used for combat. I always wonder when this might happen. It worries me to no end. Give me a short overview of what's going on in Ukraine. Then we're gonna get into commercial drones and all these applications. What we're seeing in Ukraine is by far the biggest test environment of the synergy between military-grade drone technology and commercial drone technology in a combat environment. I suspect that uh, in some top-secret lab, there's a drone the size of a mosquito, or there will be one day, right? But the average off-the-shelf drone right now uh, you know, is equal to uh, cinematic-level photography. It's, it's just amazing. Tell me how it's being used for, let's call it strategic applications in the war. What you're seeing in you, what we're all seeing in Ukraine right now is, is a combination of military drone or what we call UAV or UAS. So UAV is unmanned aerial vehicle and UAS is unmanned aerial system. Um, drone is, is more of a tagline that everyone understands, but these are actually unmanned aerial vehicles and systems. And what we're seeing in Ukraine is a combination of ISR, which is uh, intelligence, reconnaissance, and surveillance use of these platforms. So think in terms of using cameras to identify specific areas on the battlefield that possibly either side is interested in. Higher grade UAV platforms to conduct kinetic strikes. So in combination, you're seeing a reconnaissance and surveillance technology tied to uh, kinetic action. And what's even more fascinating about this is that the smaller off-the-shelf drones are being converted by private citizens and for military use in this conflict with a munition delivery capability. So we're seeing a 3D printed drone, which has been seen in this conflict as well but they're carrying 40 millimeter grenades and they're, they're flying them over, uh, over trenches where infantry is, is at and they're dropping those grenades. So we're seeing everything that we can possibly see. Now, what's interesting is that this isn't new. You know, this isn't something new. We've seen this in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. But what we're seeing now is, to me, monumental because the Ukrainian government actually mobilized its private citizens to employ their personal drones into this conflict. Well, that is the amazing part of it. And from war often comes higher technology for the civilian. 
or how to use it, right? So let's talk about shifting this from the war and our lessons learned into the private sector and security. I remember an Andy Rooney 60-minute show uh, when I was a kid. You might remember this one, where he gets on there and says, you know, the uh, the Sherman tank cost $1 billion and goes 40 miles an hour. I got an idea. Let's buy every soldier in the U.S. Army uh, Chrysler Cordoba convertible and let them drive it to Russia. And they couldn't stop it because there's a million of them, right? This is what's going to happen with drones. There's nothing we could do about, uh, you know, 500 million drones flying onto an Air Force base and, an, you know, an F-16 takes off and uh, there goes his engines. This is, it sounds crazy and scientific in a way, or science fiction, but I think we're going to see something like this start happening. Drone attacks. What do you think? And swarm te- swarm technology is already proven. So like you said, if, a, if an F-16 was taken off on an Air Force base and there was a swarm of drones in that airspace yeah that's another bad day but um that's something that is a totally different level of of drone capability and what's interesting is that commercial drones today they have the capability to sense themselves in in airspace so that they technically won't run into each other because they can sense the other drones around them and then of course with uh advanced softwares and ai uh, as it develops and matures, you know, we're seeing the capability for drone uh, swarm technology to take take shape uh, without really any any issues. In fact, um, there have been some use cases in the Middle East where we've we've seen some of this take place and to successful ends uh, for countering um, air defense artillery and things like that. I mean, you know, I think that's the the worst case scenario, obviously the worst case scenario. And it's something security professionals really need to think about. And I talk about this in terms of security program development. So if you're a security director or an operations manager or even an owner of a business that hosts public events, so think in terms of sports or concerts or outdoor events, it doesn't matter, indoor events, because drones can also affect uh, even arena type events when you have the public queuing up for ticketing or, you know, lines to get in and things like that. Uh, but the, the idea here is, is for, to, to enhance awareness for our security professionals across the country to put commercial drones into their security programs. Think about ways they can identify through a drone vulnerability risk assessment, which I've, I've published through InfraGuard, um, a technique or a way to do that. And then a drone detection and monitoring capability that actually tells people what is flying around their facilities and then developing what's called drone emergency response plans. Uh, again, which I put a framework together for that. But the the bottom line is, is that the awareness I think is out there, but the urgency to get this built into uh, security program development or holistic, comprehensive and layered security I think is way behind. And, and frankly, um, what I worry about most are, are really the public events. Think of any major sporting event, uh, professional or collegiate, uh, could even be, you know, some, uh, local high school or big high school event, um, with someone that has nefarious intent and they use their drone for that intent. And it, uh, it's going to be a bad day. Well, I agree. I, I had some people tell me that uh, there was plenty of drones at the Super Bowl in Los Angeles a couple months ago. Nothing nefarious, but they were there, and not much they could do about it from a security perspective because 
if you shoot down or attack a drone, you may be shooting down a airplane by definition, right? There's all kinds of laws. Speak to us about some of those things. You go to ISC West or, or GSX and you see all kinds of companies with drone detection and mitigation. But unless you're the government, am I wrong? You really just can't shoot a drone out of the air, no matter what it's doing. From the FAA perspective, you know, really the FAA is trying, you know, I think they're, they're building their uh, working groups and they're trying to get their hands around um, this commercial drone evolution. Um, I don't call it a revolution. I call it an evolution because the technology has been around forever. But what we're seeing is maybe a revolution in how it's used. So evolution in terms of where it's going, revolution and how it's being used. But the FAA has um, recently back, I think, in December of 2020, they did release, um, you know, some regulatory information about digital IDs. So basically a virtual license plate on drones. Um, The problem we have right now, and these are estimates only, but we think there are 1.5 million drones in use in the United States today, 2022. We think that we probably are not accounting for maybe over 3 million drones in use in some form or fashion. And that doesn't even account for someone that builds their own drone, the hobbyist, the uh, do it yourself. Um, So we've got uh, some, some serious considerations to make when it comes to that. Now the digital license plate, the FAA came out with um, doesn't go into effect for 36 months. So the longer we wait to do anything with commercial off-the-shelf products, the more the drones enter the market, the more they get into um, private hands, and then the more that are in the airspace. One of the things I talk about all the time, and I I think I've coined this phrase, but I think we're going to see a drone superhighway over our heads somewhere operating between 200 and 400 feet AGL because the FAA systems do not pick up from a monitoring perspective until above 400 feet in our airspace. So we're going to see commercial entities start using this commercial high or drone superhighway. I've been predicting over the next five years, this is going to be a reality. Um, so you can, you can call me in five years if I'm wrong and tell me I was wrong, but I think, I think that's going to happen. I'm going to call you in six months because I think it's going to be a lot sooner <laughs> than that. I, I, I've, I have a, I have a side-by-side out here in the desert and a friend of mine, a young kid who's a, a aeronautical engineer, as a matter of fact, Brings his drone out and says, hey, let's take the drone out, Charlie, and let's go take some pictures. Bill, this thing followed us around, pre-programmed. It had setups for cinematic shots where it would fly in front of us and do a circle around us. And then we came upon a big, giant cactus, and that thing avoided the cactus and reset itself. It avoided power lines. It would not go near things it might collide with, all automatically. We didn't have to do a thing. And I got to tell you, it was super cool. I'll send you a copy of the video. But to your point, also a little scary. On a drone superhighway, these things are not going to run into each other. They're programmed that well. And I, I don't know. what we got And 400 feet, by the way, that's nothing. This thing was a couple hundred feet above our head. I couldn't see or hear it. That was it. I would never know what's there. Oh, exactly. And that, that's one of the things people don't understand is, you know, these, these, these platforms are completely, can be completely in stealth mode, um, you know, really not too far above above uh, ground level. Bill, let's talk about the cybersecurity aspect here. These these drones also function as cybersecurity platforms, don't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We need to think of these these platforms as cyber attack platforms as well. And I'm not trying to be an alarmist in any way, but it's very simple to 
um, outfit a commercial drone with a computing capability, which is called Raspberry Pi, uh, on these platforms that can spoof uh, Wi-Fi networks. So let's say you're sitting at your local coffee shop and you're on the open Wi-Fi network. Well, if a drone is interested or a person's interested in collecting data from that coffee shop off of your device, they will simply spoof that open network Wi-Fi and make you think you're on the, the coffee shop network when in fact you're on the drones network. So uh, it's it's a capable cyber attack platform. The, the, uh, the idea of stealing intellectual property or data is here on and it's totally capable on these platforms. Um, and, and also think of it in terms of, of camera capability. The cameras on these that are used on these payloads in commercial off the sh uh, shelf products are 4K. And we just saw the release of a, of a new DJI drone called the M30 that has, I believe, a 48K camera oh, on boy. it. And you can go in and look up the specs on that platform but for $29,000, you will be amazed at what is commercially available. So to touch on, on these platforms as a cyber attack capability or just simply stealing intellectual property via video, uh, it's here. It's here to stay. And it's only going to only gonna get better from a technology uh, capability perspective. Now, Colonel, every time I do a show, I kind of say, oh, you know, that's interesting. That makes me feel better that we're on top of that. Or it makes me go, ugh, my stomach hurts. You just got the uh, Security Management Highlights ugh, award because my stomach really hurts. After <laughs> you've told me this part, this is something <laughs> the most nefarious. It's one thing to fly over the hot tub when my daughter's taking a hot tub, it, but it's something else to land on your roof and suck at all your data. I mean, this is, this is evil incarnate, and uh, we've got to get on top of it having this conversation is great because what we're trying to do is educate and bring this technology to an awareness level where, you know, private sector, and even we know the government is looking at it, but private sector starts to build this into their security programs as, as a possible uh, technology that could affect, you know, their everyday business or their day-to-day uh, -day operations. Uh, what can we do? I'm with you. Security practitioners listening to us have to believe this. Go get yourself some kind of drone detection system right now before they get here, because by the time they get here and you're trying to put it in a system, it's too late. That's the way I look at it. Drone detection and monitoring capability is available. Most companies want to sell an RF detection capability, which is fine, but you really in order, in my opinion, you really need to have a layered sensor package um, that is cost affordable, that the market can actually take on and, and businesses can afford that includes an RF sensor, a radar sensor, an optical sensor like a camera, and possibly an audio sensor as well. If you really want to get to the level of detail of detecting drones and then monitoring those, um, one of the the key things I always say is that the what we can do right now in the United States is geolocate the operator, which then we could deploy uh, a law enforcement element or we could uh, have someone go to the operator's location and say, hey, we understand you're trying to get a picture of the, you know, the ball game, but you can't fly over our stadium, pull your pull your drone back. So 
really the, the legs of the chair here are conduct a drone vulnerability risk assessment, employ a drone detection and monitoring capability that gives you a really good picture of your airspace. I hear people all the time tell me that they don't have drones in their airspace, but if we do a complementary deployment of a drone detection capability, we can show the pattern of life of drones over their facility and it actually scares them when they see how many drones are actually flying over a specific place. And I normally do this with stadiums um, and concert events or concert, uh, I'm sorry, concert outdoor events so they can see exactly what's over their, over their uh, venues. And then employ, employing capability becomes more important. The last uh, leg of this uh, chair is a drone emergency response plan. And then, of course, rehearsing and training with key stakeholders on what you do if you have this at one of your major events. So that's that's kind of what you can do now, because like it is against uh, the law to take a drone out of flight, except for specific instances of like critical infrastructure uh, where we where the government does have the ability to do that. Or over a tier one event, um, you know, maybe uh, consider like a Super Bowl or some sort of a political event, you know, there could be the ability to to take drones out of the air in that respect. And there are many ways to do that. That's not necessarily just shooting a drone down. That's not how it happens. You can break uh, the actual uh, contact between the ground control and the drone itself. So you can take away its connection and then the drone won't won't know, um, you know, where to go. It'll if it's pre-programmed, it will land itself or go back to home. Um, the some of the things you were talking about, how the drone avoids and and uh, avoids obstacles and follows you around. That's a that's called a follow me technology that's built into commercial drones. So there's all kinds of ways um, to look at these platforms. But what we have to do is start at the very beginning, which is have an idea of how to put this technology into your security program. I agree 100%. And, you know, normally I'm the guy that asks the questions, and I very seldom editorialize or put my opinions into stuff. And I'm going to put it in here. I'm with you 100% on this. There is technology right now uh, that, you know, that can do everything you're saying. And one of the arguments I hear back from people is, well, so what? I can't do anything about it. I can't take it out of the air. What am I supposed to do? I look at this from an investigative point of view. If I was collecting data on every single drone in my airspace every single day, 24 hours a day, and I throw that in a database, all of a sudden I'm doing some data analysis finding out, hey, the drone with this tag number flies over our company every day at two o'clock and stays there for an hour and then leaves. And what a coincidence, every day at two o'clock we have a staff meeting. Well, maybe I have an espionage pattern here, right? So we need to get this stuff into place now, not just because the drone might be trying to blow us up. That's worst case scenario. That's kind of, you know, maybe that's out there, but certainly espionage, uh, you know, Look, looking at employees, you're, you're going to have some stalking issues. You're going to have drones that are stalking their ex-wife at work. All these things are going on right now. I'm confident of that. And getting this technology in place is going to help you find that as a security practitioner. Yeah. And what you're describing is what I call pattern of life analysis, right? So you can, you can actually, and we've done this, you know, with, with companies I've partnered with in the past, that's the right way to think about it. And and drone detection and monitoring isn't perfect. I mean, I'll be the first to say that. And it's really hard to do if you're simply focusing on one sensor. So if you're just focusing on RF as your as your means of detecting a drone, 
you know, it's okay, I think, but it's really not what we really need to get to. And I think private sector companies, they need to figure out how to provide a, a layered sensor package that's a cost affordable, which, you know, most of them will tell you now that when you add radar in, it, it's pretty expensive. Um, cameras are fairly cheap, but really good cameras aren't. And, um, and then adding an audio capability is pretty simple, but RF is really the simple way to go right now. And that's what you're seeing in the market. So it's, um, we got a long ways to go, but really what we're seeing play out right now, every day in our news feeds is how drones are being used to give the Ukrainians some parity with the Russian army, which to me is fascinating. Colonel Edwards, thank you so much. Fascinating conversation. Let's keep this going. I'd love to talk to you some more about this. We could talk for hours about it. It's such an important topic. I really think as far as security practitioners, if it's not at the very top of our security concerns list, it's it's right up there. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a great, great talk. Mr. James Beal, CEO of NGS. Welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, you guys did a survey. It's the 2022 Building Perimeter Survey. What are the key findings from that? I'm really interested. I, nobody would know building perimeter better than you, a glazing company. That's right. We have um, been very active, obviously, in the in the uh, glazing security space for over a decade. It's really interesting. I think really the common theme that we find and that we found specifically with this uh, survey, the key findings, is that you know everybody has a, a general concern about the the effectiveness of their existing perimeter security measures and specifically as it relates to glass right um, because a lot of times your your security professionals will inherit for lack of a better word the environment right they're they're often not involved in the design and build of a building and so they're they're really kind of playing whack-a-mole with what do I need to fix or what do we need to look at or where's my you know where's my Achilles heel and you know in this particular survey, um, you know, 82% indicated that building perimeter security is, is the highest priority or very important. 45% said highest priority, 37%, excuse me, 37%, very important. What we're seeing and what we see from this, um, or what we saw from this survey is that uh, your security professionals are seeing that attempted breaches in the last year, approximately 10 and a half uh, attempted breach attempts. And then approximately 10 and a half successful breaches. And, you know, if you, if you look at, uh, you know, a loss of life, one breach is too much successful breach. So that's really an issue um, that is a big problem in the, uh, in, in the design build uh, of buildings, commercial buildings, government buildings, K through 12, all, all that stuff. So access control is, is a real thing. You know, one of the other takeaways there is that the human aided breaches are the, are common and the greatest risk and that shouldn't come as any surprise and i and i would sort of look at that as your active shooter type scenario so it's not your you know typical vandal but that's more somebody who's actively trying to cause harm and and mask a mass casualty event unfortunately and then protecting people and property which the, you know these go hand in hand right that was one of the other the other findings um, from this survey is that 69% of respondents agreed or strongly agreed that protecting people and property from natural disasters is an important consideration in building security, perimeter security. You know, and it's, it's not just the coast, right? A lot of people think, oh, you know, it's hurricanes. I, I'm, in, I, I'm in the Midwest. I don't need to worry about that. Well, 
That's not necessarily true, right? Um, you, you know, when a, when a tornado comes in, you may not get hit with a direct hit from a tornado, but the airborne debris, uh, debris field from a tornado in a wide radius is going to break windows, shatter glass. And once it shatters glass, you have, you have positive negative pressure cycles, water damage, you know, possibly people getting hurt, um, things of that nature. So that is a concern all, all around the country. And if you look at the wildfires in California, they had gusts of up to 100 miles an hour when that fire gets raging. Um, and so you, in fact, have a de facto hurricane caused by a fire out on the uh, out in the West Coast. So it is an issue anywhere in this country uh, to protect against storms um, and, and, and natural disasters. So and 78 percent of the respondents agreed or strongly agreed that protecting people and property from riots, looting, or other civil unrest is a growing concern. And this is a crazy fact, um, but uh, that, that is that is really kind of kind of popped up here in the last couple of years is the civil unrest, obviously. Um, and that is a big thing. And again, this comes down to having a passive system. I can't tell you how many times we talk to um, owners or, or, you know, uh, property owners or facilities people. And they say, well, we had, you know, security grills or gates and they weren't locked or they weren't engaged. So it's, a, you know, it's somebody has to engage them and it's not practical um, to engage them real time. You really want something that's in place and, and is always working so that, because, you know, when there is a civil unrest or a flash mob or something that pops up, or, uh, you know, a, uh, a natural disaster, you may not be able to get somebody to the property or to be able to engage it um, in time. And that may, that may be the last thing they're concerned about, right? Hurricane, you're going to get out of Dodge, civil unrest, same thing. You know, you want to, you want to be concerned with um, ensuring that you're not putting people in harm's way. Um, you really want to make it as easy and seamless as possible. The, the protection is in place. No worries. And one of the most interesting findings is that confidence is weak. Only 5% of the respondents indicated that they have best-in-class building perimeter security, which means 95% are not confident or, or worse, worried about what, uh, what, what their current situation looks like. You know, James, the thing you just said about inheriting a building really struck home with me because I inherited the Fox Network Center back in the day, which was complete glass, five stories, and then... 9-11 happened. Yep. And we had to figure out how to take that glass and make sure when a bomb went off, it didn't become a 500-pound Frisbee. And this was a big challenge. So I really hear you about that. How right. can NGS products and services help address your findings in this survey? Listen, this is, I think, a really underlooked uh, issue in security. Yeah, you're you're 100% right. Um, ultimately, what, where we can provide the most value is we can survey and assess a building anywhere in the United States, look at what your existing facade and glazing system looks like, and give you the options to secure it, whether that's entry-level security film, riot glass access denial, or ballistic, provide you with solutions and options and pricing and get it done as quickly as possible for you. Excellent. James Beale, CEO, NGS Films and Graphics. Mr. James, thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Eric Anton, CPP PSP, is a chief security officer who has worked in the manufacturing, hospitality, and energy sectors in the security industry. He is also a former special agent for the U.S. Department of State. 
Mr. Eric Antons, welcome back to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thanks. Good to be back. It is good to be back. Good to hear from you again after about a year or so. Uh, today's topic is the forgotten fifth option of risk management. I was really fascinated when Claire sent me this topic. To redefine that title, you and I are going to speak about defining risk as a positive thing in security, which is something we never, ever, ever do because our entire job is based on risk assessment and risk is usually a vulnerability for the company. And let's talk about how we can make that positive. Positive. Tell me uh, what you mean by this. Yeah, I, I always like the term fortune favors the brave. You've heard it before and, you know, kind of prompts the question then, okay, what does it mean to be brave? And I think a good way to think of it is, you know, brave to be brave is to face risks uh, usually on a level few really care to accept. And I think all too often we, you know, we call ourselves physical security risk managers. We are risk management professionals. But I'm always amazed by how many of us in this profession still struggle even to define the differences between threats and risk. And, you know, I think most of us would say that, you know, a threat is quite simply you know, a statement or an intention to cause harm of some kind. Whereas risk is, long and short of it, is exposure to danger. However, um, you know, if you've studied for the CPP or if you've taken any other risk management coursework, you're oftentimes taught, okay, there are really four commonly held beliefs about how to manage risk. Uh, the first one is you can accept it. And that is to say, okay, we are comfortable with our current controls uh, we're comfortable, we understand the risk, we understand the, the risk landscape, uh, and we'll simply accept it as it currently stands. The other option is the, quite the opposite, and that is to avoid it, to avoid it altogether. You know what, we're uncomfortable with this, we don't have controls in place, we don't wanna get involved, we don't like the risk environment, we're simply going to walk away. The third option, and the one that we usually are hired for, is to manage that risk, that is to say, well, you know, we're a little uncomfortable here, but we think we understand it or we can understand it enough to emplace adequate controls to manage it. And then the other option, uh, we used to say we would transfer the risk. So we would we could transfer that risk, the, the idea being that we would load it onto the back of an insurance underwriter. So we'd buy a bunch of insurance and simply transfer the risk onto them. But if you've ever truly been through a real loss event, you know, you never truly transfer all of that risk to a, to an insurance provider. At best, you're then sharing the risk. But the one we oftentimes overlook is, and this is one of the biggest differences between risk and a threat, it can actually be positive and we can exploit the risk for maximum gain. So it's just something that I've always kind of kept in mind. And as my career sort of developed, I saw some real life examples for where this really played out. I hear you on this and I get it. Here's why. So I was in the studio business, as you know, for a long time. I was there when we were filming Titanic. Titanic was a Fox movie, not a Paramount movie. The reason it became a Paramount movie is because Fox ran out of money. They had to partner with Paramount for U.S. distribution. And they were going broke. They thought they were going to lose everything on this. But somebody at the studio said they're going to take a big enough risk because they think that James Cameron and his vision was going to, was going to be successful. So, of course, it turned out to be the highest grossing film of all time at the time for many, many years. Remember, over a billion dollars. So here's the irony I hear in your statements. If we take a business setting and we look at risk analysis, businesses take risk all the time. Without risk, 
there's no innovation, period. You have to take a risk or there is no driving force that comes up with the light bulb and the telephone and all the new things we have, right? But when we bring it back to a security perspective, I guess our view, our lens says, oh, risk is scary, risk is messy, risk is, you know, people get hurt. And so is it just that we look at it through a different lens? Because risk drives business all the time. Yeah, I think it's next level application of security management protocols and um, you know, it's the easiest thing to do, as you know, if you don't understand what's going on around you is to simply circle the wagons, you know, place the rifles out at the ports and get ready for the worst to come. Those of us who have been around long enough are very comfortable operating in very high levels of ambiguity. And we can sometimes just take those situations and turn them, flip them on the line. If we have some really strong creative controls in place, we can actually use security as a business enabler. And I, and I know that exact studio you're referring to. It's in Baja North, Cal or Baja North Mexico, which is kind of a seedy area. I know that um, because I used to work for a company uh, in Southern California. It was an energy company. And uh, we had some operations down there as well. Uh, and we were always uh, encountering a lot of risk, a lot of threats um, in Baja North. And it was uh, because we had some strong security protocols in place and controls in place that we were actually able to build this facility and get people down there on a regular basis. And now it's one of the few um, liquid natural gas facilities, uh, even on the West Coast. And now with all the situation in Russia and everything else, that company is able to take advantage of the marketplace and really exploit what's going on. Hate to sound like I'm, you know, it sounds bad to say we're exploiting what's happening in Ukraine, but you know, ex exploiting the risk landscape now to be one of the few providers. Where I saw it early on in my career, uh, where I started to connect the dots, it was uh, about September of 2004, and I just gotten out of basic agent training within the uh, diplomatic security service at the U.S. Department of State, and I was posted in Kirkuk, Iraq. Now, as you probably know, Kirkuk is all about the oil. Uh, that's where we have these massive oil fields. I think they were producing something like a million barrels a day up there. And there were a number of energy companies that had been working for years, um, making lots of money. But when the war kicked off and things became a bit too kinetic, they were very, very uncomfortable working in that environment. They didn't have adequate security controls in place to deal with the saboteurs are, are out there running around, blowing up pipelines, uh, conducting brazen midday attacks on government buildings and police stations. So they basically abandoned all of their operations in the fields. Other companies moved in that had experience working in places like the Niger Delta, uh, some other uh, more challenging environments around the globe. They were able to purchase some of their assets literally for pennies on the dollar. Uh, they emplaced some very robust security controls, and they realized immediate gains simply by exploiting what was going on around them. So I was very impressed by that, and it surfaced again in my career. I, you know, later on, I was posted to another little offsite compound, even smaller, in northern Afghanistan. And uh, I remember one time we did a flyway with our senior civilian representative um, to an area, and we um, met with a group. Uh, they were with the Aga Khan Foundation. And if you're familiar with Aga Khan, they get into some really interesting development uh, programs, uh, usually in some very difficult environments, but they're in there for the long 
Paul. They're in there for the long game and they develop a lot of relationships with people on the front end. Uh, they have very low profile, but robust security controls. And they're able to do stuff out in the field uh, as a result of their security controls that other people just simply don't get into. Um, for example, to this day, they're still the managers of the Serena Hotel in downtown. Well, the Serena is basically a four-star resort in the middle of a war zone. Um, and they charge for it too. Uh, there's certainly a market for it uh, for years and years. Um, you know, if you were with CNN or you know a large news outlet, you needed to have a safe place that also offered some uh, creature comforts and decent food. You were willing to pay for it. A lot of other major hotel companies wouldn't touch it uh, at all because they were very uncomfortable working in that risk environment. But the Serena employing what they learned working with the Aga Khan Foundation had some very robust security controls in place uh, and they charged an arm and a leg for it. I remember you could uh, uh, rent a, uh, an armored vehicle and driver for upwards of $500 an hour. People were eager to pay for it. They simply wanted to be safe. To my earlier point, risk drives innovation and that hotel understood the risk, managed the risk properly and turned it into a positive. And, you know, I think back on all the things that have happened in my security career, uh, North Hollywood shooting when I was a police officer, 9-11, uh, all those things. Had we not had those incidents, our security industry would not have moved forward in innovation, right? So we have to take the risk and look at it from a cautious point of view. But if risk is only defined in business as an uncertainty of a future business enterprise, then we can help the business, I think, get there by, by us as practitioners viewing risk differently. My question to you is, how, how do we do that? How do we do it? I mean, it's I, I get it, but I think a lot of people might find it hard to flip this switch in their brain and view that as a positive thing. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, you have to kind of consider it like an intermediate or even an advanced concept. You know, I would never recommend somebody, you know, go into business in the middle of a war zone unless they had that experience that you're talking about of having already worked in a Petri dish or two um, in what we do. And it, it really just comes from experience. It comes from, sadly, taking a loss of it here and there and learning from it. Um, and it kind of speaks also uh, to what Nassim Taleb uh, calls anti-fragility. And, you know, anti-fragile was a revolutionary book when it came out back in, I think, 2012. But you're hearing kind of a resurgence of it of late in risk management circles, because it seems like a lot of people have just now discovered these concepts. And anti-fragility, you know, we, we think about, um, you know, what, what fragile, everybody knows what fragile is. But and we talk about resilience, too. Resilience is basically the ability to withstand pressure and, and come back to the original state as quickly as possible. But Talib says there's even a higher level of this. He calls it anti-fragility. And that is not only being able to withstand stress, return to normal state, but actually improving as a direct result of it. Uh, it goes beyond Nietzsche's, um, you know, that which uh, doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Um, th this actually does make us stronger as a result. And so it is kind of an advanced concept. I would never recommend that anybody get into something, you know, working in a war zone unless they've um, perhaps tried it out in peacetime first. Well, that makes sense. Uh, and on the other hand, if you can embrace the risk and manage it properly, you can be more successful. I think what I'm hearing is most security practitioners are defined 
by preventing risk in their organization. Therefore, you're going to side with caution on recommending measure, security measures, protocols that help lower that, that risk. Where some risk is just going to be inevitable, isn't it? Things are going to happen. We know they're going to happen. The question is, how prepared are you and how resilient will you be to response? And, and I think I, I find the resilient part lacking in a lot of security plans. They, they work on fortification. They want to make sure that risk doesn't happen. They're going to keep the risk out. They assume they're going to keep the risk out. And when it comes, they're not as resilient to recover. And I think if you are more resilient in the long run, that's your best protection against risk. I agree. And in thinking even just beyond resilience too, Chuck, I mean, it's one thing to be resilient, but try to always keep in mind, at least I try to do this, you know, let's, if, if resilience is eight on the scale of one to 10, let's try to always think in terms of 10. Um, let's have those open discussions and ensure that our senior leaders, um, our executive committee members, uh, understand that risk can actually be a force multiplier for the business uh, and for the organization, and that we play a vital role in actually helping the business operate in those kinds of environments of uncertainty. Well said, Eric Anton, speaking about the forgotten fifth option, risk management. Eric, always a pleasure to speak with you, my friend. Thanks again for coming on Screen Management Highlights. Thanks, Chuck.